Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and making stuff. So what have you been making recently? This is the part where we talk about the making things. I don't know why you clarified that, but yes, it is. I don't know. I just thought <laughs> if someone's listening to us for the first time, maybe they're confused as to why we're just starting a, a history podcast by talking about cake. <laughs> um, I've not made cake. <laughs> Good. Um, I did make Welsh rabbit for the first time in like seven years, though. Oh, yum. With, with some of the homemade beer. Oh man! Oh, you're so cottagecore. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about Welsh rabbit in the local larder, but th- this one was very good. Oh, that sounds amazing. Like if the beer portion is bitter, it like contrasts really well with like the sort of sweet sharpness of cheese, and it's just it's very good. <laughs> you sound like you're having like a transcendent experience. I haven't had it for seven years. <laughs> that is fair my father's. <laughs> Dish of my people. I mean, literally, my father's father. <laughs> what, what have you been up to? Um, I just kind of working on... Um, on different projects, really, reading up a lot about dyes and things, because um, I'd quite like to get into doing that. Um, I've been I've been processing um, the sheep's fleece that I have in a giant bag in my room, so that's finally getting done. I've been doing a lot of carding and spinning, nice. um, so. Yeah, it's only been like a year, but I'm finally getting to it. I <laughs> I hope they have enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is there's a, f- a fair amount of happening right now. Um so hopefully I'll have enough for the coat that I wanted to make. Um Yeah. Um yeah, so just kind of continuing with with a few long-term projects really. I haven't dipped into anything new i did make chocolate and lime cupcakes and they were delicious chocolate and lime is it's it's underrated as a combination i think great flavor combination right because i feel like lime is a very strong flavor and the chocolate kind of tempers it if yeah this, the the old-fashioned sweet shop near us does chocolate limes which are kind of like um you know, like chocolate eclairs, where it's like chocolate and then the toffee outside? Yeah. It's like that, but instead of toffee, it's like a lime-boiled sweet. Oh, man. <laughs> that sounds like a time. It's it's very good. <laughs> yeah, lime is tasty. So, um, I... I did actually uh, want you to, I wanted to get you to guess my topic for today's episode. Um, You know, I just thought it would be fun. Um, So I'm going to give you some clues. Um, 
this episode is going to be about a color. It is going to be about arguably the most expensive color in history. Um, it is very associated with ancient Rome and Greece. She hasn't noticed. Oh, did you did you do a guess? No, I I put cut out because it, the sound oh, cut no. out. The sound cut out right after you said I'm gonna ask you to guess. Oh no! You, like, uh, I did say I would put a message if it cut out. Yeah, but I was I was looking at um the facts. <laughs> okay, do you want to do that bit again? Okay. So this episode is going to be about a colour and possibly the most expensive colour in history. Um, very associated with ancient Greece and Rome. Um, and this colour is directly responsible for the decimation of a particular species of Mediterranean snail. <laughs> Okay, I know what it is. <laughs> Gone. It's my favorite color. Really? Have you not seen my hair in the past like five years? Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. But <laughs> okay, so go, go tell the peeps. Is it indigo? Ah, it's actually not indigo. It is Tyrian purple. Oh, which I feel is probably what you were thinking of i knew it was i knew it was a purple yeah um yeah so i, I guess you can get similar colors to indigo but this one there is a particular it's like reason. a deep rich purple yeah like there is a reason why this color was so expensive um so that, like basically you could only afford it if you are royalty mm -hmm. um and and that is because of the way it was made um, because of the material it comes from um, and also because it is a very particular shade of purple. Um, so I think it's probably fairly generally known that purple is like an imperial colour. Um, yeah, like ancient Roman sumptuary laws. Yeah. Um, yeah, like purple being restricted to like imperial use um, or to officials like being able to have strips of purple on their robes. Um, so I feel like like a, a lot of people would think of ancient Rome and like Roman emperors when they're thinking of the color purple. Um, but Actually, there's kind of a reason why this purple in particular, like Tyrian or Imperial purple, was the Imperial one. Um, so I've been doing quite a lot of reading up on natural dyes over the past few weeks. And turns out there are a few plants that you can get purple from. Um, you can get it from logwood, um, which is a tree that grows in Asia. Um, you can get it from, you know, a few different other plants. But in Europe, the trade routes for these kind of dyes hadn't really been established yet. So, like, we didn't really know about them. Um, plus, 
the other dyes so you can use uh berries like elderberries or blackberries or you know mm-hmm. other kinds of things um to get a purple um, but the thing about Tyrian purple is it's a lot more colour fast and light fast. Like it doesn't fade with age. In fact, it apparently gets even richer and brighter. Okay. Yeah. So that's why it was so prized. Like it was this this really deep colour. It's actually kind of more of a deep magenta colour than... No, like... it's, a ver- it's a very red purple. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, I mean, you can get some of the other kind of blue tone purples from mixing other dyes as well, or from over dyeing. Um, but you can't, you cannot get this red, dark red purple color from anything else. Um, and you can't get a dark, a purple this color and light fast as well. Um, Think of the color of like super synthetic, like grape flavored stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah actually it's ribena color oh no what am i thinking of um that like vimto yeah i I would say vimto is more the blue purple ends okay like it's it's very hard to think of something natural that's that exact purple, and I suppose okay. that's kind of the point. Yeah. Well, yeah. I get. I I probably go with more ribena. Actually, I feel like that's. Yeah, ribena is yeah. a little bit more fake looking. <laughs> <laughs> no shades of ribena. I love that stuff. Um. Oh, yeah, but also like, yeah, I do think the closest is like the packaging of something like grape flavored. <laughs> Is is the is the color of Tyrian purple? So as we're establishing, it's it's a really hard to pin down color, um, <laughs> which is why this specific shade was was so prized, right? Um, and it's called Tyrian purple because one of the centers of manufa- manufacture was the city of Tyre. I think it's pronounced Tyre. Is yeah. that T Y R? T-Y-R-E. Oh, like like a tyre. Yeah, like tyre. <laughs> um, which is in modern-day Lebanon, which at the time was Phoenicia. Um, and interestingly, um, Phoenicia is the Greek name for the Lebanon area, and it's possible that the name Phoenicia means land of purple, because that's where the Greeks were getting this dye from. That's a really pretty name, then. I know, right? Oh, maybe you think of alphabets, but I know that it's the other way around. Like the alphabet is named after the concept of phonetics, which is Phoenicia. But that's a different podcast. <laughs> we do, we do throw off a lot of tangential ideas on this podcast. We just like history. <laughs> yeah, it turns out there's a lot of it, and it all interconnects. <laughs> <laughs> Defense. <laughs> yeah. So Phoenicia was the the center of this this purple dye industry um, in the ancient world, and they they kind of had outposts across North Africa where this was being produced as well. Um, so the purple dye comes from a particular kind of sea snail that lives in the Mediterranean um, called the 
murex snail. And there are at least three species of this snail that all produce various different shades, um, kind of from magenta to like a dark purple um, and also to like a red. One of them is uh, like Tyrian red. Interesting. Which was also super expensive. Um, yeah, so this was, uh, this was highly prized in the ancient world. Charlemagne was buried in a shroud uh, made from Tyrian purple. Of course um, he was. Of course. <laughs> Although, for Charlie. <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> so, although that was in the 9th century, I believe, so kind of somewhat after ancient Greece and Rome. Um, the manufacture of this dye goes back to probably before 1000 BC. Um, what, we've, what we have found as the evidence of this is like a lot of the cr of the crushed snail shells um along the coastal areas of the mediterranean but the earliest evidence we have for the actual dye itself on uh material was actually discovered this year which is impressive because it's in 2021 yeah <laughs> So we've already had some pretty cool discoveries. Um, yeah, no, this... Okay, so this this article that I got this from was published on the 28th of January, 2021. Um, and it's the, the discovery um, of researchers in Israel um, having found some fragments of, of wool fibers um, in Israel dating back to about 1000 BC. Um, so fragments of wool dyed with Tyrian purple. Which is incredible. Like, I didn't expect for like <clears throat> this, this much of a recent development in the case of Tyrian purple. Wow. I know, I know. And Wait, as in this year, do you mean like There's this a year right now or do you mean 2020? The, this wow. the, like, tiny amount of wool that they found. Um, and I believe this is like the actual wool they found and it's still purple. It's still like recognizably purple. <laughs> like it's incredible. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, guess it makes up for it. First known evidence of Tyrian purple, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> uh, it's possible that the the use of this method of creating dye was known uh, even just as the wool surviving that long even somewhere um, like israel is crete but incredibly um, impressive just yeah, on its the, own the 2021 and then it happens to be this super rare the color earliest actual dyed material we have um so it's it's an ancient process um and it went on pretty much until the fall of constantinople that's that's when you see it 
that, getting that's kind of awesome. Lost the gods of archaeology um, are apologizing so for all the museums. It was being super, shut. super popular in um, ancient Greece and then ancient Rome. And then the Byzantine Empire preserved the technique of dyeing with the murex snail. Um, But then after the fall of the Byzantine Empire, um, not good at dates. Can you remind me when uh, the fall of Constantinople was? Was it 1450-something? Yes, that's what I was thinking. Oh, I'm so good. <laughs> I'm now going to proceed to like be be a um, proper history podcast person and just say that date as if I uh, knew it from the start. So with the fall of Constantinople in 1453, um, no one really, no one really had the money or like could be bothered to continue making Tyrian purple um and that is because um (laughs) as well as it being a horrifically expensive dye um and as as we were saying so expensive that you could only afford it if you were insanely wealthy basically imperial um that being because you needed so many of these snails to make the dye um, the dye comes from uh, yes, fourteen fifty-three, I believe, within the shellfish. Um, <laughs> and so you have to you have to catch thousands of these shellfish, and then you have to extract the dye. Now there are two ways you can do this. Um, the first way, which is not the way they did it in ancient Greece and Rome most of the time is a much kinder way. So the first way um, is that you basically annoy them (laughs) into giving up the dye. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, basically. So these are, they're predatory sea snails. And among other things, um, this, this gland where the, the substance that has the dye in it um, is used for uh, like squirting at, at things um, in, in like predatory behavior. So if they get agitated or like, you know, angry, they'll squirt out the dye. Um, kind of, yeah. Um, so basically you can, you can go and bother some snails <laughs> and then put... ah unless you are specifically um from (laughs) unless you are a professional snail bother which they are in oaxaca mexico there is there is still um i believe is it like a squid ink situation of um milking snails in oaxaca in mexico um, and there's an amazing um, Mexican documentary on this on YouTube. It's got English subtitles that I found, uh, which is this guy basically explaining how they do it. And they go out onto the rocks and they collect. They they find these snails, um, and it's it's a different species of snail. So it's not the same one that's in the Mediterranean, but it's 
So it's attacking. It's a different species, but it still has the purple dye. Um, so they go out onto the rocks and they have to like camp there because it takes so long um, to like milk all the snails. This podcast is not um, endorsed. And they basically snails. get the snail. Um, they milk it. <laughs> so like they they kind of just you like professional snail bother. Squeeze the snail and until it um, squirts out the dye, and they put it straight onto the yarn that they're dyeing. Amazing. Uh, and then they just put it back and go find some more snails. And apparently it takes like 28 days for them to like, re- you know, regain, like remake the, the dye, like refill their glands, as it were. <laughs> um, and then, <laughs> yeah. And then they can, they can be like harvested again. Um, so it's... Um, it, it's a method that doesn't harm the snail and therefore doesn't deplete the populations. Um, but uh, as you might expect, it you cannot produce a lot of dyed material with this. Like the the guy in this documentary was saying that even in its heyday, when the populations of the snail were still really good, um, they would do like maybe five or six skeins of yarn in each trip um, of like, you know, a week's camping or something so yeah it's like that they're, they're okay. not really making it to sell um <laughs> it's it's more like a traditional practice um and in fact in this documentary there are some amazing shots of uh backstrap weaving with some of this purple yarn um so i'll post a link to that actually when we put the episode up um so that's the first way and people it like have been that. also doing that um, you know, in the ancient world. The second way, which is the one that they used in the um, industrial production of this dye, uh, is that you collect all these thousands of shellfish, then you crush them, and you leave them to ferment. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently it smells atrocious. Like, awful. <laughs> Um, um, (laughs) well yeah I mean I feel like um, people well you'd think people might be a bit more used to strong smells back in history but like apparently even people at the time were like no this is rank (laughs) we do not want to be around this (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um so the way that Pliny the elder describes it I said it right. <laughs> I remembered. Um so the process that uh, Pliny the elder describes um is that they hmm. less nice. It would. I guess they were already making garum. It's like, what's one more barrel of fermenting fish? Wow. 
Uh, yeah, so they, they like crush the shells and then they take the, the vein, there's like, they find the gland, um, that has the dye and they extract it and then they like salt it, leave it to steep, um, boil it and then there's like a funnel involved, um, they, they have to skim the liquor takes about 10 days um and then you can dye it that's that's the process that he describes okay um, yeah um but then archaeological data also indicates that that they were left to decompose to like ferment um so we we can't actually reproduce this method like no one has managed to be able to do it to this day we don't know exactly how they did it <laughs> so you said that it kind of stopped after the fall of Constantinople. Mm -hmm. Was that because like, it was too depleted by that point? Or did the Ottomans just look at it and go, we're not going to do that? Uh, basically, yes, on both counts. Like, um, as you might expect, this absolutely decimated the Murex population of the Mediterranean. Um, so by this point, like, even to this day, the snail is extremely rare in the Mediterranean. So they they kind of ruined it. <laughs> yeah. um, they they kind of used all the snail, um, which is I guess, one reason I guess the Ottomans could trade with with Asia, couldn't they? Like they had their own sources of purple. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's that's another reason. Um, so it was basically that after the fall of Constantinople, so the Byzantines were doing this, you know, as a tra as, as a tradition. Um, mm -hmm. going back to ancient Rome um, but it was falling out of favour elsewhere because it was just so expensive like ridiculously expensive because of the I mean it took about 10,000 of these snails just to make enough dye for a trim for trimming your clothing um, Presumably getting more and more expensive as time goes on as well. Well, yeah, because of the, <laughs> running out of snail. the yeah, running out of snails, yeah. So by by this point, like by 1453, like it's getting more and more difficult to even find the snails. Like no one's really got the money anymore. No one can be bothered with this, basically. Um like there's there's no point. <laughs> Um, and so purple kind of goes out of history for a bit after that, um, at least in the kind of European slash Middle Eastern world, um, until um, the importation of purples from Asia, um, which is like a couple of centuries later. Yeah, that'd so, be more Silk Road stuff, presumably. Mm, yeah, um, until you think get access to things like logwood which can give you um bright color fast purples 
Um, and in fact, the medieval um, Western world kind of moves on to, okay, again, I'm not sure how this is pronounced, but Kermis? Hermes? Kermes? K-E-R-M-E-S. I think it's just Kermis. Kermis. Okay, also known as Vermilion or Scarlet. So that that particular scarlet red, which was a hallmark of wealth in the medieval world, um, that kind of takes over as the fancy colour, which I believe is also why cardinals wear red in the Catholic Church. Yeah, because Catholic priests like their fancy clothes. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah. So that that's kind of the reason it it died out um and as as i mentioned the only place they really make this today is in mexico um and you know as a very small scale thing so it it's just absolutely wild like the whole entire concept of this is ridiculous yeah um but then you know it's it's just interesting that it really is a completely unreproducible shade like the it's the only way you can get this particular color um so i guess it makes sense that people would do this but um yeah um, I mean, I mean, we know we were they were doing it in these massive quantities because we we found the remains of the industry, like the discarded shells. Which um, so, for example, um, at Sidon, which is uh, another Phoenician city, um, there's just the quantity of discarded shells created a mountain like forty meters high, um, like wow. this. This die was worth more than its weight in gold. That's that's a legitimate hill. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the scale of this industry. Like it was was big. Um so even though this was a luxury good and there was very little of it around, it required this this massive industry to sustain it. Mm. Um so you know, that like when you don't have emperors with massive amounts of personal wealth as well as like a lot of taxpayers money <laughs> um, like no one, no one just, just no one can afford this anymore um yeah so that that is um the relatively brief but extremely wild history of the color Tyrian purple that is indeed extremely wild. <laughs> there is a lot more to this than meets the eye. Um, and um, going going a bit more onto, I suppose, a subject more relevant to us today, um, it's kind of an example of how, how I think we, going forward, need to kind of blend these older ways of making things with the technology we have today because when you think about you know the demand we have today for clothing and the 
um, like amount of people there are. If we were to go back to using completely natural dyes, that would have a, a terrible effect on the environment because natural dyes need a lot of quantity of material compared to the thing you're actually going to dye. Um, I mean, no, most of them are not as um, as significant as <laughs> the Tyrian purple, um, but you still need generally about twice the amount of dye stuff to the material that you're going to dye. Um, so, and, and you know, in the past, this did have an effect on the environment. Like this snail is almost extinct today because of the demand for this dye. Um, you know, even 2000 years ago. So, yeah, um, although the process of natural dyeing itself, like the process is much more environmentally friendly than the process of creating um, most synthetic dyes, um, the, the actual dye stuff itself, like that can be difficult to obtain or like it, it could be harmful to the environment if we were to harvest a lot of it. Um, yeah, I guess what you really need is like an end to fast fashion and yeah. developing more environmentally friendly <laughs> synthetic dyes at the same time and as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at here. Like, I think probably the way forward is like definitely um, the process of synthetic dyeing needs to become a lot more environmentally friendly. Um, and I definitely think that there's a lot of things from natural dyeing that we can incorporate into um, into those processes. Mm. Um, so I don't know, I think perhaps going forward, um, the, the way might be to figure out, are there, figure out how we can use like waste products as dyes um or or that kind of thing yeah um so i yeah like like most things i think it's it's a combination of the old stuff and the new stuff <laughs> what <laughs> surprise it's compromise again <laughs> um so before we go on to local larder, um, if you want to suggest an episode or just say hi, um, we do have an email, uh, breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we also have Twitter at breadandthread, so uh, you can keep up with all the exciting things on there and uh, take part in like the the guess what the episode is game that we play every couple of weeks um, so on patreon at bread and thread if you want monthly recipes and access to a discord server and potentially at the ten dollar tier um us to make you your very own bonus episode i'm mod paper from probably bad rpg ideas and we have a podcast if you'd like to hear RPG advice on how to use assorted incredibly bad ideas as actual ideas in an actual game, then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available on pretty much every podcatcher. And remember to have a probably bad day. So, tell us about some rare bits. Yes. Um, so... 
The exact origin, unsurprisingly, is kind of unclear. Um, it's thought to be a corruption of uh, Welsh rabbit, okay. which um, is first recorded in 1725. Um, but we get rare bit by the 1780s. Um, is it a writer, um, mostly an antiquarian, but sort of one of those people that does a bit of everything called um, Francis uh, Gross, who refers to it as Welsh rabbit and Welsh rare bit, um, two words in that case. But it's generally agreed that rare bit is a corruption of rabbit. Okay, but like. Which is probably insulting the Welsh. Okay, I was going to say because, like, as. Oh, sorry. Um... Yeah, I was going to say, because as far as I know, there's no actual rabbit involved. Oh no, it's a vegetarian dish. <laughs> um, the general consensus seems to be that it's um, that Welsh people are either they're poor or stupid, so they make cheese on toast and call it rabbit. Because people were really mean to Welsh people. Yeah, Especially that is kind English of people. That is kind of a been mean to Welsh people. <laughs> um, so Welsh rabbit itself is generally leeks, cheese, beer, mustard, melt it all together and pour it over toast. And it is delicious. Yeah, there's no way to go wrong with that. Um, like... Top tip, actually. There's a Welsh cheese called Aveni, um, which is Y space F-E-N-N-I, which has um, ale and mustard already in it. So if you want a, to make a, a rabbit just really, really easily, get that. Oh, I, I've had that, actually. We got some on my birthday, and it is amazing. Would recommend. Like, go get yourself some, it's delicious. Yeah. Um, but the dish itself probably developed from um, a much earlier thing. We don't know how early, but probably medieval, mm -hmm. uh, called Kaus Pobby, which um, is Welsh for baked cheese, um, where you basically you put the cheese up near the fire and the top of it melts, and you scoop that off and put it on bread that you've also toasted over oh. the fire with a toasting fork. Oh, wow. It's like extreme cheese toast. It's almost like a Welsh fondue. Oh, man. That's amazing. Which... Is it's interesting because you need quite a hard cheese for that, and a lot of Welsh cheeses are quite soft. Okay. Um, but there's some Tudor accounts of a hard used milk cheese being used, Ooh. which I can imagine that being particularly good actually, because used milk cheese tends to be a little bit nutty. Um, not that I eat inordinate amounts of cheese or anything. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I, I like the idea that like people all throughout history have just been like, yep, toasted cheese, good. Well, the, there is something in the stereotype that I mentioned of Wales being poor, um, especially at that point, because, yeah, England likes to just go into Wales and attack people and take all the good stuff. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Welsh people were very poor, um, especially, you know, peasants who are poor everywhere. So something like that would be, especially if you can mix some seasonings in, in there with like with the rabbit, would just be a really nice comforting dish after a hard day. Like you're out, you know, you're working in, you know, on the hills with your sheep or whatever, and then you go back into your little house and you get some hot cheese and some hot bread and you put them together. And you just sit there and you eat it and everything's okay for a little bit. Oh, hot melty cheese. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, there's references from the late 18th century of it being becoming a tavern meal, like a, a thing that you would just wander into a pub and order. Um, it does. It sounds like good pub food, actually. Like it's fairly simple to make, and it goes good with beer. I mean, like I said, if you make it, if you make it right, um, it's got beer in it. Mm. Um. So interestingly, it gets referred to at various points and in various places as um, English, Irish or Scotch rabbit, as well as Welsh. Um, but the referring to it as Welsh seems to come first. Okay. Um, there is also a variation called um, buck rabbit or golden buck, which is when it's served with an egg. <laughs> That's interesting. Which just sounds like a really good breakfast. <laughs> yeah, and apparently you can get in some places, um, especially places in the US with a large Welsh uh, background, so places like um, Appalachia and parts of Pennsylvania, that have a lot of um, Welsh ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get rabbit sauce or rabbit sauce on a hamburger in some places. Oh, wow. Wow, that is a, a whole new dimension. I feel like that would be quite good. Yeah, like I... Because the, the problem with like queso like the american cheese sauce i think is that it's very like it it doesn't have a lot of depth of flavor to it okay you know the sort of the bright yellow tex-mex cheese sauce i i think i know what you mean i don't think i've ever had it but like i watch movies yeah (laughs) um but I i think if you i think having it with rabbit would be really good and i'm gonna have to try that at some point 
So yeah, that is, there's not a lot of information about Welsh Rabbit. That's basically all of the information that I could find about it. Um, apart from that it is mentioned in, um, yeah, it's mentioned in a Tudor era joke book. So it's it's one it's one of the sort of um I've forgotten the name. Um it's it's kind of a shaggy dog story about um God getting sick of there being so many Welsh people in heaven. because um, God's mean, I guess. <laughs> um and tells St. Peter to do something about it. And he St. Peter goes outside the gates of heaven and says House Pobby, tis much to say as roasted cheese. Um, and all the Welsh people run out because they want some rabbit, and then St. Peter locks them out of heaven. <laughs> so there's that. Okay. Well, I think I'd pick rabbit over heaven, to be honest. I mean, it's basically the same thing, right? Yeah, that's... It really is, though. <laughs> that is pretty much all of the information that I could find about Welsh rabbit. That is fantastic. I love the rabbit burger idea. Oh. So, yeah, thank thank you for listening. And we'll be back next time. I think I will do sumptuary laws next, since That's I brought a... them up, and now I realise that a lot of people probably don't know what that is. That is a great idea. Uh, I feel like it will we'll have a good segue for once. Yeah. The segue will be, listen to the last one, and then this one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we will be back in a couple of weeks, and I will tell you all about sumptuary laws. Goodbye.